Breaking news happens every day or two and grabs our attention. Many of you probably are so attuned to this that you get pop-up notices or texts on your devices to alert you of the latest and greatest breaking news. Last Sunday, it was Tiger Woods' victory at the Masters, his 15th major championship and his first in over a decade. Some called it the greatest comeback in sports history. But by Monday afternoon, we had forgotten about that sports highlight as we watched the famed Notre Dame Cathedral burn. Every major news organization was carrying the story, and I checked on Twitter. The top four trending uh, things on Twitter referred to the cathedral burning. But just two days later, as I began to write this sermon, I checked Twitter again, and there was no longer any mention of the Notre Dame Cathedral. Twitter had moved on to other things. It wasn't even in the top 20. Tracy and I are going to be at that site in about three weeks. We are going to be celebrating 22 blissful years of marriage. It's actually our 25th anniversary, but I calculated up that three of those years, cumulative, were not exactly all that blissful. (laughs) Now, she might have different calculations, and I want to ask you to do me a favor and not ask her for her calculations. So we will now get to see the ruins of that fire rather than the beauty of the cathedral. Breaking news is breaking news because it is spectacular and unexpected. We sit glued to the reports until the novelty fades or some other breaking news takes its place like we woke up this morning to the bombings in Sri Lanka. Churches and hotels that catered to foreigners bombed simultaneously, and hundreds have perished on this Easter morning. And most all of these stories, unless they somehow personally affect us or are connected to us, do not impact us in the long term. We might be excited or sad for a short period of time based on the news itself, but it normally does not last. We don't remember it very much. There are a few of those events that we do always remember where we were when we got the news. For example, I still remember sitting in a class on the campus of the University of Georgia when the news broke that the space shuttle Challenger had exploded just a few seconds after takeoff. Or I still remember being on the phone with a cousin of mine, talking about a mission trip that we were organizing with him, only for him to say, hold on just a minute, a plane just hit one of the towers in New York. We remember where we were during those events, but those are rather rare. This morning we have gathered to consider once again the greatest breaking news story of all time. And like any story, the danger for many of us is that we can become so familiar with the basic storyline that it's really not breaking news anymore. We hear it once again and we go our way, believing in our heads that it is true, and yet not being impacted by it long term in our lives. You see, this news is not to be replaced by the next story that hits the headlines tomorrow morning. 
If indeed this is the greatest news of all time, then it is not to be superseded by whatever takes place this week. But it is to be the story that continually reminds us of the greatest aspect of our lives, and that is our salvation. And not just that we know the facts, but that it continually transforms our lives. So let's look once again at this breaking news. We're going to use Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. One of the marks of breaking news is that it is surprising. That is, we do not expect it, we did not see it coming, and therefore when we hear it, we are surprised. And that is certainly true of this greatest breaking news story of all time. If you've been with us, you know we've been studying the Gospel of Mark. We made it to chapter 6, and then last week I fast-forward to chapter 11 so that we could examine the triumphal entry of Christ along with the cleansing of the temple that took place on the next day. We are fast-forwarding again today to the end of the story, to chapter 16, and after this week we will go backwards and we will pick up in chapter 6 once again. Uh, you may recall that at the beginning of this series I told you that Mark is the forgotten gospel. That is, we do not look at this gospel like we do the others. Perhaps it is because most of Mark is told by Matthew and Luke many times in greater detail, and so we, in a sense, don't feel like we need Mark. That is also true when we come to the resurrection story. I have been in full-time ministry now preaching for 23-plus years, which means, of course, that I've done at least 23 or 24 Easter sermons, and I have never used Mark's version for Easter. I think we'll see some reasons for that, but we use it this morning because we are studying this gospel. Now, what I want you to notice, first of all, is that the people surrounding the first Easter were not expecting this. This was surprising news to them. Now, to be fair, they should have known it was coming. Jesus had told them multiple times, at least five times in Mark's gospel, we are told very clearly that Jesus told them specifically that he was going to die and be raised again. In one case, he said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He is killed, after three days He will rise. 
But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Well, maybe given all of the things that has transpired this last week of Jesus' earthly life, maybe we can give them a pass for not remembering the things he had said during those three years and thus forgetting that he had predicted that this was going to occur. I might agree with that argument except for the fact that the last of the five times that Jesus predicts his resurrection occurred just a few days before it happened, that Thursday night as they were celebrating the Passover together and as he transformed that Passover into the Lord's Supper. After the meal, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus predicted there that they would scatter and flee and then he said, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So just about four days previous to the resurrection, he had told them that it was going to happen, and yet they had not the foggiest idea that this was going to occur on that Easter morning. How do I know they were surprised by it? First of all, I know it was surprising news to them because of the preparations of the women After the sun had gone down on Saturday and the Sabbath was over, the Sabbath running from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, these ladies went to the markets that would have reopened and they bought some spices in order to go and anoint the body of Jesus. John tells us that Nicodemus had already done this, but evidently these women wanted to demonstrate their devotion by doing it themselves. Now the Jews did not use spices in order to embalm as we might today. They simply used it as a sign of devotion and as a way to cover over the smell of a decaying corpse. And so they got up early that Sunday morning and made their way to the tomb, discussing along the way how they were going to get entrance into the tomb because they knew there would have been a large rock or stone guarding the tomb, and they did not know how they were going to roll that away. They did not know anything about the official Roman seal They did not know anything about the guards that had been placed there. It is ironic that the religious leaders who sought to kill Jesus were the ones who remembered that he said he would rise again, and they wanted to make sure that it didn't happen. And so they went to Pilate and reminded him of Jesus' words and asked for guards. But his own disciples did not remember his words or even consider that this was a possible outcome. So we know this was a surprising event because these women came to the tomb on that Sunday morning to do one thing and to do one thing only, and that was to anoint the body of Jesus for a proper burial. They didn't have the faintest idea that anything other than last rites were going to take place on that morning. Certainly the disciples were surprised as well, for while the women were making preparation, The disciples were in hiding. John tells us this information, that later on that Sunday, the men were huddled together in hiding because they feared the Jews. They were afraid that as disciples of Jesus, they were likely to face the same fate that he faced and to face it very soon. They were not sending out a scout party to see if by chance Jesus' words might have come true. They were not hiding somewhere near the tomb looking just to make sure that nothing happened. They were in hiding for fear of their lives. 
Now, we might excuse the women because we don't know for certain that they heard these predictions by Jesus. I think we can somewhat assume that they might have gotten word of it, but we don't have a record of them hearing it. But these disciples, these men, have no excuse. They had been told numerous times by Jesus, and yet, in spite of His repeated statements regarding His resurrection, they simply viewed it as not a possibility. And keep in mind, again, if you've been with us in the study of Mark, keep in mind all that they've seen and heard previous to this. They have watched Jesus perform miracles. They have seen Him cast out demons. They have witnessed Him walking on water. Or what about that one incident that we've already dealt with where they went into the home of a man by the name of Jairus whose daughter had died. And the three disciples, who we call the inner circle, those three men, Peter, James, and John, were in that house with Jesus when he raised that little girl back to life. And yet, there is still not one thought in their minds that Jesus himself might be resurrected as well. So they are in hiding with no thought of a resurrection. And so while the women were making preparation and the men were in hiding, we also see that everyone, that is everyone that was connected to Jesus, was hopeless. I've told you before that one of my favorite stories is the New Testament story that occurred on this Sunday where Jesus is walking the road to Emmaus and he comes along two disciples. It's about a seven-mile walk And so as these two disciples are walking back home, they are discussing the events that have gone on in Jerusalem that weekend. And Jesus comes up to them, but of course they don't know who Jesus is. They are prevented from seeing who he is. And Jesus says to them, and paraphrase here, what are you talking about? And they say back to him in sadness, are you the only one in Jerusalem who does not know what has occurred during this last week. And so they began to explain to him about this prophet. That's what they called him. This prophet who was mighty in deed and word and how he had been crucified. And then they said, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But now it has been three days. In other words, there's no hope. There's nothing to be done now. We saw him crucified. The hope is gone. But here's what I want you to see. And here is the part of the story that, frankly, I'm not sure I remembered. I I reread this story this week, and I saw these details that I seemingly had not seen before. These disciples on the road to Emmaus told Jesus, they said, there were some women from our group who went to the tomb this morning, and they said it was empty. They said that they had a vision from an angel that told them Jesus was alive. And these two disciples then told Jesus, and some of the men, some of the disciples, went and checked out their story and found it just as they had told them. My question then is, why are these two men going home? Why, after they have heard the report of the women and the confirmation from the disciples, are they now so hopeless that they are still going home? Couldn't they have waited around Jerusalem for one more day? 
to see what these reports were all about, but it is so far out of their mode of thinking that Jesus could actually be alive that even after hearing the reports from the women and the disciples, they are going home, and they are going home hopeless. So the idea that the disciples planned an elaborate hoax is nonsense because they had not the faintest idea that this was going to happen. Nobody associated with Jesus expected what occurred on that first Easter morning. It was surprising news to all of them. Well, the second thing about breaking news is that breaking news is communicated. That is, it, it is instinctively shared. M- merely seeing the empty tomb is not sufficient. The women had to be told what it meant. After all, on its own, now hear me correctly here, on its own, the empty tomb only tells us that the body of Jesus is gone. It only brings up the question, where is the body? Maybe they had gone to the wrong tomb. Mark dispels that argument by repeating that these women are the same women who witnessed the crucifixion and they witnessed the burial. That's part of the reason I read those scripture verses to you earlier, because these are the same women who were in all three locations, the crucifixion, the burial, and now the empty tomb on Sunday morning. This is also a reminder that the one who was crucified is the one who was resurrected. There is no mistaken identity here. They are one in the same. Others have tried to argue that in the semi-darkness, they simply made a mistake. But again, Mark dispels this by telling us very clearly that the sun had already risen. This is not a vision problem. As they enter the tomb, they find a young man sitting there on the right side. Of course, we know this young man to be an angel. His clothing gives him away. And the angels were often used as a means of announcing heavenly news. We see that at the birth of Jesus, something we celebrate every Christmas. And here we see an angel coming to announce the resurrection of Jesus as well. Luke actually tells us that there were two angels, but both Matthew and Mark simply focus on the one who is conveying the announcement. And the immediate reaction of these women is fear. Again, nothing about this scene is what they expected that morning. And fear is the initial response that we often see in Scripture when confronted by a heavenly messenger, which is why that messenger begins the announcement by saying, do not be alarmed. But after that comes the headline. Here is the breaking news in the words of Mark as conveyed by the angel. He has risen. He is not here. You have come to search for Jesus, but you've come to the wrong place. You have come to seek the living among the dead. Why would you come to a cemetery, a gravesite, to see that which is alive or who is alive? Again, the small details are helpful. The angel invites them to examine the specific location. This would have likely been a shelf or a niche carved out of the rock. 
These are not tombs as we think of them. These are small caves where along the sides multiple people could have been buried. And so they would have stooped in a very small doorway. They would have gone in and then around the sides there would have been opportunity for multiple people to be buried. And remember from chapter 15 and verse 47, these women had seen where Jesus was laid. And so now the angel invites them to see that spot once again. There is also, of course, the detail of the names of the women. Mark does not often give names. We've looked at story after story where the people involved in those stories are simply unnamed. But here, not only does Mark name the women, he does so repeatedly. Three times in chapter 15 and 16, he names these women because he wants us to see that they are indeed eyewitnesses of what has happened. They saw the crucifixion, they saw the burial, and now they see the empty tomb. And here again, this is a powerful detail. It tells us that this is not a made-up story. By law in Judaism, a woman's testimony was not valid. I recognize that we don't like that, and we certainly don't do that in our culture. I'm simply telling you what was custom there. It was by law not regarded for a woman to give a testimony in a court of law. And so for women to be the first to come to the tomb and be the first eyewitnesses in all four Gospels tells us that this is not a made-up story by the disciples or the early church because they would have never put women at the tomb first. This is an eyewitness testimony of a factual event And so the angel tells the women to go and tell the disciples and Peter. Peter is singled out not just because he was the leader of the disciples, but because he is the one who so vigorously and repeatedly denied the Lord. In spite of his bold statement that he wouldn't leave even if everybody else did, we know, of course, that he denied Christ. The others fled which Peter did as well, but on top of fleeing, he denied Jesus. And no doubt, he is still grieving over his denial, wondering if his disloyalty at the very moment that Christ needed him the most is going to disqualify him from whatever lies ahead in the future. This is a tremendous statement of assurance, a tremendous statement of encouragement and a tremendous statement of grace for Jesus to say, make sure you tell Peter. And let me tell you that if Peter is not renounced because of what he did, if Peter is not forsaken by the Lord because of what he did, then you and I are not going to be forsaken either. This is a tremendous statement of assurance that in spite of what Peter did, Jesus says, make sure you tell Peter that he's still included. Make sure he's in Galilee where he's going to meet them, just as he said he would do in chapter 14. And the place where Jesus first called these men to be his disciples, he says, tell them to go back there, and there I will meet them and reconvene with them once again. Breaking news is surprising. Breaking news is communicated. But thirdly, breaking news is impactful. And by that I mean it makes a different difference. It elicits a response. 
Again, in many cases, this is temporary, but it is a response nevertheless. We had a response on Monday afternoon when we were watching that fire burn. I heard from many people who said they were sad at watching that. In fact, some people posted that they were surprised at how sad they were, how much this had affected them. Breaking news does impact us. The response of the first people to hear the breaking news of the resurrection is predictable. They were astonished. They were amazed. They were frightened. They were overwhelmed. They had a hard time processing what they had seen and heard. So much so that Mark tells us that they do not do immediately what the angel tells them to do. Now, we know that they did it. The other gospels tell us that they do go and tell the other disciples, but evidently they didn't do it immediately because Mark tells us that they fled and they remained silent. Isn't that ironic? Again, if you've been with us in Mark, you know we've talked about something called the messianic secret. That is, there were multiple times where Jesus performed a miracle and then he said, do not tell anyone. Because there were going to be misconceptions about who he was and so he repeatedly said, do not tell. That's even the case at the, at the raising of Jairus' daughter. He told his, her parents not to say anything. But every time he told someone not to talk, what did they do? They talked. They went and told. And now these ladies are told to go and tell. And instead, they remain silent, at least for a time. And here again is a recurring theme in Mark's gospel. When confronted by the power and authority of Jesus, people simply don't know how to act. And they don't know what to say. We've seen it time and time again. The people marveled. The people were astonished. They were amazed at what they saw in the healings and the miracles and the casting out of demons. They were amazed at his authority for he spoke as one who had authority and not as the scribes. We saw in the story of the demons cast out into the herd of swine that the people were so astonished they asked Jesus to leave their area. In the story of the transfiguration in chapter 9, which we have not gotten to yet, after, after Peter says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Do you want me to build some tents so we can stay here a while longer? The Bible says this. It says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter was speechless, which is not often the case with him. So it shouldn't surprise us that these first witnesses to this breaking news of the resurrection have the same reaction. But it does surprise us that Mark ends his gospel here. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking he doesn't end it there. There's still some more verses. Verses 9 through 20 are still here in the gospel. I don't necessarily want to bring this up today, but I feel like I must. And perhaps this is the major reason why we don't tend to use Mark's gospel for Easter. Virtually every scholar is in agreement that verses 9 through 20 are not original to Mark's gospel. This is what we call a textural variant. That is, there are variations in some of the manuscripts. Most of them are extremely minor. This is one of the more prominent, along with John chapter 8, the story of the woman caught in adultery. There are over 5,600 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, when I say that, I do not mean full copies of the New Testament. I mean some of those manuscripts are a book of the New Testament. Some of them are fragments of a book of the New Testament. 
And not all are equal. That is, some are older and some are more well-attested, and therefore they hold more weight. Long story short, there are sometimes minor differences in these manuscripts, and that is the case here with Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Now, I also need to reiterate for your assurance that with so many manuscripts, many of them very early, the Bible is by far and without question the most well-attested document of antiquity. That is not just something pastors say in a church. Even our opponents would acknowledge that. There is no comparison with any other work of antiquity between the Bible. It is the most well-attested book. So do not let these minor issues bring you doubt when it comes to the authenticity of the Bible. Some have, separate, some have speculated that Mark wrote something else, and either it was deliberately or accidentally lost, but I don't think that's the case. They say that because we expect some post-resurrection appearances here. Like the other Gospels, we expect Mark to tell us about the appearances of Jesus, especially when Jesus has said, tell the disciples and Peter, and so we would think that we would hear something about Jesus appearing to Peter, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, and to the other disciples. But I think it's best to conclude here that Mark does conclude his gospel at verse 8, and he does so for a very important reason. That is, his main theme has been people's reaction to an encounter with Jesus. And here we see once again that they don't know how to react. They don't know what to make of this. And so while the gospel of Mark has concluded, the impact of the resurrection has not. Paul makes it very clear that early Christianity, or all of Christianity, I should say, stands or falls on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. But if there is a resurrection, then there is a God. And if there is a God, then Jesus is that God. And if all of that be true, then the Bible is true, which means heaven and hell are real, and that Jesus makes the difference as to which one you are going to. And so I want to conclude with three impacts the resurrection should make on all of our lives. First of all, there needs to be agreement. That is, do you believe that Jesus is indeed alive and that the tomb remains empty because Jesus is not in the grave? Jesus is seated at the right hand of God making intercession for us. I have occasionally done Easter sermons where I try to dispel the other options. That is, I list all of the other possibilities, and I try to show how those are not really plausible. And I've done a little bit of that along the way this morning. So these sermons are designed to prove that there is no better explanation. After all, no one at the time denied the empty tomb, and nobody produced the body of, of, of Jesus, which would have crushed Christianity right at the start. And since there are no other plausible explanations, then the resurrection must be historical fact. And while there is great validity to all of that, the truth is agreement means believing by faith. I certainly do not mean blind faith nor ignorant faith, but it is faith nevertheless. We have to take the revelation that we have in the Bible, and in this case, from the words of an angel who communicates this breaking news to the women 
And so are we going to believe that the empty tomb does mean by faith that Jesus is alive? We've also seen in our study of Mark's gospel that just because a miracle takes place does not necessarily mean that faith is going to follow. So even intellectually admitting the possibility of a resurrection does not equal belief. By grace you have been saved through faith. And so in order for us to come to agreement with the resurrection, we must do so by faith. But secondly, not only must we have agreement, but there must be continued amazement. If we can hear or read this story annually and not be amazed at the greatest breaking news of all time, then we have grown cold and even apathetic to the truth. And I'm not trying to point fingers this morning. I'm simply stating the reality that when we've heard something for many years or all of our lives, we can lose the sense of awe. The empty tomb means that sin and death has been defeated, that we can be forgiven of our sins, and that the grave is not the end for us either. Or as the hymn writer said, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And my question to you is, are you still standing in amazement? Or has this news simply become another headline to be replaced by another? The final impact or reaction I would combine with agreement and amazement is announcement. We actively and instinctively share exciting news. Are we doing the same with the news that Jesus Christ is alive? I think there is a strong connection between these last two. I think the more we are amazed that Jesus is alive, the more we will announce it. But if we have grown distant from that amazement, if we are no longer standing in awe of the empty tomb, then we are in all likelihood no longer announcing it. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is still impacting our lives, then it will be natural that we announce this news to others. The disciples might have been slow to grasp the news and respond, but once they did, the Bible tells us they turned Jerusalem upside down with the message of a risen Christ. Mark begins his gospel with the announcement, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark ends his gospel with the greatest evidence that this is indeed good news, and that is that Jesus is alive forever. Paul writes in the beginning of Romans of Jesus that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. May we be in agreement with that. May we continually stand in amazement of that. And may we leave here ready to continue the announcement that Jesus Christ is indeed alive to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.